You're listening to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countrymen. Throughout the season, on Tuesdays, you're going to get a new audio documentary and a bonus conversation with some of the producers of those audio documentaries. Here to talk about the episode that we just released, No Rules, The Birth of the UFC, our reporter, Chris Berube, who works with Pineapple Street Media. Hello, Chris. Hello. I was told Stephen A. Smith would be conducting this interview, <laughs> so this is a big letdown. He had to cancel at the last second. And our very own Andrew Mambo is here, who was the lead producer um, of this episode on the ESPN side. Hello, Andrew. Hi. How are you doing? So just for context, like the both of you did the bulk of the reporting on this, and this is kind of your baby. So congratulations, by the way, on a very fun episode. Thanks. Uh, we're asking the same basic set of questions each week, so let's just start going down the list and talk a little bit about uh, about this episode. What is one thing that you thought going into this story that changed over the course of the reporting? I think for me the thing that was really surprising is I've grown up seeing the UFC become a mainstream thing and a mainstream acceptable thing. I didn't realize how little people believed in it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like It's interesting watching a sport get born because it is – this chaotic process of, you know, the first event, nobody knew what they were doing, and there was just so much stuff happening behind the scenes. I just didn't know any of that backstory, that the first UFC was something where, by the end of it, everyone was like, well, we're done. We're probably never going to get another shot at this. Uh, and just seeing how it evolved from there was really interesting. And hearing some of those stories from the production crew behind the scenes. Oh, my God. Like, those you know, are my this, favorite this, moments. But there's so much more that doesn't really get in there. Yeah. And, you know, like there's tape that we were trying to find of actually, you know, apparently they were rolling on the conversation that the production crew was having on the IFB lines. Mm-hmm. And, and we were really desperately trying to get that tape because we thought that would actually be brilliant. But it is apparently gone. One thing that both of you are getting at, which I thought about a lot listening to this, was, you know, how much this element of fun and weirdness was present in the initial conception. Did you guys get the sense of overreporting this that the original group had a sense of like, this is really weird. We're not taking this super seriously. I think I don't know about art, but I think some of the people in the production crew were working on a lot of large productions and it had experience doing all these kind of, you know, big things that this was kind of the quirky fun thing that they did. And some of them would talk about how, you know, they got the call. Hey, we're doing another one. And they're like, great, this is fun. But I don't think that like from art and Horion, I think for them it was, you know, this is this was a beautiful thing. This Mm -hmm. was like, you know, exactly what they wanted. This is how they envisioned it. And yes, it's a little bit messy, but the end result's what they expected in a way. It's this weird thing where they needed those professional TV people to make it big, right? Like to get it on pay-per-view. But fundamentally, they wanted it to feel like a street fight. They wanted it to feel like people are just beating each other up and anything can happen. And I think what you see in the first broadcast is the fusion of like these professional people trying to do a professional job and these people who just really want it to be just this bloodbath street fight where anything can go. And as a result, it's it's like kind of a total mess, the first broadcast. Like I've watched it a couple of times now. And it's funny because you see all these like little like they have like behind the scenes camera footage and stuff like that, like all these little professional touches. And then the fights themselves, like nobody really knows what they're doing. Like the kickboxers really don't know what to do when they're facing a sumo wrestler. And like the when you see the boxer against the jujitsu guy, it's like, oh, you're watching professional people put into a completely new context and just have no idea what to do in that situation. So both of you in our conversation so far have referred a fair amount to watching this, you know, and going back and doing the research and seeing the sort of visual element here. Do you want to talk a little bit about the challenge of doing this as a podcast where obviously we don't have that element? It's a TV broadcast. I think the most challenging thing with this 
is in most radio sports documentaries, you have commentary to fall back on. So if you don't want to tell the story for a while, you can have a commentator come in and say, okay, this is happening, this Mm -hmm. is happening, this is happening. We don't really have that luxury with ours because in that first broadcast, the commentator is Bill Superfoot Wallace, the kickboxer who'd never done TV before. And then something we don't even get to in the doc, Jim Brown is also Mm – up there as one of the TV commentators. Football legend Jim Football Brown. Football yeah. legend Jim Brown. No one is sure why he was invited, but he is also there. And then another kickboxer named Kathy Long. And between the three of them, they really don't know how to narrate this kind of a fight. So we couldn't really fall back on just having a running color commentary. So we have to kind of do all the narration ourselves. So, like, one thing that we did is we showed most of the fighters and we showed Art uh, and Horion, we showed them the fights. So we had them kind of do that narration for us. So you hear that throughout the, the radio documentary because we couldn't just fall back on the TV broadcast. Interesting. You do get them to really paint that picture in a really impressive way. I, I, I know just having seen the production process that it involved a lot of time with these folks to get them to sort of like paint this picture, tell this scene, get super detailed. But it really comes through because you get this sort of oral history sort of told with like five or six different perspectives. If the announcers weren't that bad, though, you wouldn't, get, again, what I think is maybe my favorite moment in the whole thing, which is where Superfoot, where we talk about how bad Superfoot is at, oh at being God. an announcer, and he burps in the middle of his of his opening line. The we, thing, yeah. the, the, I was going to say, the thing about that is, and, I, and Chris knows this, is that everybody talks about Bill Superfoot Wallace and how bad he was, and I feel that we really pulled it back a bit, because there's definitely tape of people going in on him, and it just does not feel fair. So I noticed, too, just before we got on the air... Every time he hears me in the IFB, he stops everything he's doing. In fact, once, his eyes kind of drift up to the ceiling, and I go, Bill? Bill? Yeah, Mark. And I go, why are you looking at the ceiling? He goes, uh, no, I'm just you know listening to you. I go, you can't listen while not looking at the camera. Got it. So now the whole truck's just going, this is going to be frightening. Bill Superfoot, uh, who's a super moron, I just want to, I hope, please don't cut this part of the interview out. It, it didn't make the documentary, but we actually did an interview with Bill Superfoot Wallace, yeah. and he doesn't think he did that poorly. Like, he doesn't remember burping. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't remember that part. He, uh, it's so funny because talking to him, he's like, yeah, I think I made a couple of mistakes, but uh, I think by the end of it, I was doing a pretty good job. And I can say, having watched it a few times, Bill Superfoot Wallace does not do a, a professional job. He was not invited back. He was right. not. Anymore. But you wouldn't have it any other way, for UFC no, 1, at least. No. Um, so uh, this is a great segue because you've, you've, you've you just mentioned sort of tape that you didn't use in the piece. And so our, our moving down our list of questions that we're asking each week, uh, is there any piece of tape that didn't make the final piece that you particularly love and that you want to highlight here today? So I'll let Chris do this one because there's one piece that we, we both think is a great piece of tape. Um, I wasn't there, and I'm sad that I wasn't oh there for this moment. Yeah, I was kicked out of an interview. So uh-huh. um, something that we allude to but we don't really talk a lot about in the documentary is that a lot of these original guys argue about who deserves more credit for having created the whole thing uh, my first interview with Campbell McLaren who's uh, one of the guys who worked at Semaphore um, I one question in I brought up just a, a pretty normal detail I was like so you're in this room you know Art's there Horan's there is Bob there and Campbell asked me like are you talking to Bob and I was like yeah, yeah, we're planning to and talk Bob to Bob. Bob is, is another TV executive. Bob, part yeah, of this original Bob's team. Campbell's boss. Bob's yeah. the guy who's like the head of Semaphore, and uh, this is what happened. Take go, take me back to this beginning here. So, Art comes here. Art and Horion come here to make their presentation to you and and 
Bob, right? Like, what no, are they? Bob wasn't, Bob wasn't there. He wasn't there for the presentation. Are, are you talking to Bob? Uh, I managed to get a hold of him. Yeah. So. All right, we're done, pal. Are we done? Really? Yeah, we're finished. Thanks very much. We gotta go. Sincerely. Yeah. Why? Why should I not talk to Bob? No, you can talk to Bob. Uh, well, no, I'd I'd like to talk to you. Why? Go ahead and talk to Bob. It's a free country. We gotta go. Come on, I gotta lock up. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on there. It. Yeah, I follow, ended up following him down to his car and stuff. Uh -huh. um, and you can hear a good yeah. reporter's instinct, though. You came up yeah. with a good you know, follow-up right away. So what was going on there? It's something where, um, I mean, Campbell is upset because it's. I, I think he feels like he gets written out of the, the history a little bit, and he feels like Bob Meyerowitz gets a lot more credit because Bob did own the UFC and kept it going You know, after Campbell and Art and Horion were all out of the picture. Um, and to his credit, Campbell gave us another interview, and uh, we, we talked about some of that stuff off microphone. Um, ultimately, I think it wouldn't have happened if all these people hadn't come together in a very particular way. Like, you need Horion for the martial arts. You need Bob for uh, the money. You need Campbell for his TV skills. You need Art because he has, like, the drive and the ambition to pull this thing together. So I think we got to that place, but it was, uh, yeah, there's still some sore feelings because it's something where none of these guys from the original are still around, and most people just assume, you know, Dana White was the yeah. person who created the UFC uh, and the Fertitta brothers. And that is a history that I think hasn't really been corrected all that much. I mean, it is funny that he is shutting it down because he feels like he gets written out of this story. When you were literally there with a microphone trying to write him into the story, right? And it's interesting, like, how a lot of these guys really want to tell the story. And they yeah. still want to, like, not quite set the record straight, but they... They all want to share it. They all kind of still felt, you got the, a bit of the impression with some of them, they felt like their story, their angle, their side of it hadn't really fully come out yet. And they were really open to talking to us from Ken, all the way, you know, Zane, all these guys were really mm -hmm. open to, to doing it. And, and even people like off camera where nobody had ever talked to Kathy Kidd, which was incredible to me. Yeah. Right. Since she's such a fascinating element here and, off, and offers like a real sort of sense of kind of humanity and, and literally behind the scenes. I mean, I think she's like a real kind of uh, important part of this story. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that she's the person on the ground who, uh, you know, Art and Horion were ecstatic about how it turned out. And they were really happy about how violent it was. And mm -hmm. Kathy is has this very human reaction of like, I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know how to feel about what I just saw. And I don't know what the consequences are. So, yeah, she was she was great. Um. How much is this story something that you could go to kind of any maybe sport or any kind of like billion dollar industry and be like, there is a sort of hidden and strange origin story? Or do you feel like there was something specifically about UFC that led to, you know, th th this kind of uh, this kind of roots? Well, I think with a lot of sports, you could if you could travel back in time and talk mm -hmm. to the people that are actually there right. at the inception point of like of of that sport. The the unique thing about this is that within our lifetime we have a sport that is reached a huge number of people is a massive sport and we have a a place where we can pinpoint the origin and it's within, you know, our lifetime and we can talk to those people. Those people are still around. You know, I feel like there's probably a lot of messy stories around the beginning of basketball and Dr. James Naismith and you mm -hmm. know, convincing people to put some peach baskets up on a wall. Uh, probably there's a lot of a lot of good stories around there, but you can't talk to any of these people. There's so many sports I think that are like that. There's no there's no pinpoint place to go. So let's start to wrap up here. But um, I know you you just finished producing this and maybe don't have a ton of distance from it. But are there any particular moments in the piece that are sticking with you as just like listeners of this thing? You know, any kind of 
things that you'll bring up at your next cocktail party or any kind of like little anecdotes that you just love from it? What really sticks out to me is just how vivid this is for a lot of these people still. Like for Ken Shamrock, when we talk to him, like he is still, this seems like the one that got away. This is the fight where he is still confused that why, that he didn't win. Like he still doesn't understand it. And it seems like he's more at peace with it now. But it's funny for a lot of these people, they can go right back there because this was such a unique and vivid and weird night. And truly nobody knew it was going to happen. And it could have gone any number of ways, but it just happened to go the way that it did. But, you know, there is one really great piece of tape that I think um, it kind of grew on me a bit, but was a tape of hearing Horion Gracie talk about putting a chokehold on people. For me, it's just this piece that I don't think it necessarily always stands out, but when you listen to it a few times, you start to realize he's like, I take them by the neck and I put my arm around their neck and you start to cut off the circulation. Lovingly, Lovingly. gently, (laughs) carefully. Carefully. I grab a hold of the guys, put them on the ground lovingly, squeeze their necks carefully, you know, slowly, and they twist their arms a little bit, they tap out. If the person does it right, it doesn't even hurt the neck. You just feel like gradually you start losing out. If you're very lightheaded, and before you know it, you're in the twilight zone. And it's just like this, like, he talks so poetically about choking somebody out that it's just, uh, that for me was like one of my most beautiful moments of tape in this. this video. Uh, it's funny because, like, right after he said that, I'm like, but is it dangerous? He's like, oh, yeah, if you do it wrong, you cut off circulation to the brain and you could kill somebody. But to him, <laughs> it's like, though. to Lovingly. him, though, if it's done right, it's just this beautiful, like, poetic dance where you choke somebody out and they fall unconscious. They just go to sleep. They head off to the twilight zone, as yes. he says. Yes, exactly. Quote. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Chris Barube, both for joining us today and for uh, working on this piece. It was really lovely. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jody. And Andrew Mambo. I'll see you back at the office in a few minutes. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of 30 for 30 Plus. We will be back next Tuesday with a new documentary. There is lots more at 30for30podcast.com. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening.